isn't the fact that an NBA referee fixed games over four NBA seasons sexy enough? Like, that's, that's an absurd, crazy story. And most people who think they know the story don't even know that. Welcome back to another episode of Our Podcast. Today's guest is Professor Sean Patrick Griffin, Professor of Criminal Justice at the Citadel, a former Philadelphia police detective, and author of the best-selling book, Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. Thank you so much, Sean Patrick Griffin, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So in your book, Gaming the Game, you delve into the 2007 NBA betting scandal. This story resurfaced recently with the release of Netflix's documentary. And of course, I have documentary in, in air quotes, which, which is called Untold Operation Flagrant Foul, which focused on NBA referee Tim Donahue's involvement. Can you provide a brief overview of the key events and individuals in this 2007 NBA betting scandal? Sure. Essentially, the scandal begins, uh, even now we're really not sure. We know for sure it starts in 2003, where Tim Donaghy admits to betting on games he officiated, and it carries on until 2007. So it's four NBA betting, four, four NBA uh, seasons, including betting seasons. The key characters in the story are Tim Donaghy, the referee, who at the time was a 13-year NBA referee. And for your audience, they need to know he was a highly rated referee. The NBA audits their games. And I'll explain much later why that's important. He was actually a highly regarded referee when it came to calling fouls. He was the referee. His gambling partners in the scandal, and this is a bit complicated, in the early part of the scandal, he was simply betting with a friend of his named Jack and Cannon. He has no, he's not a professional gambler, he's not a mobster, he's a nobody, he's a regular guy, an insurance salesman, with whom Donaghy would play golf and Jack would bet. And Donaghy would place bets on his games, games he was refereeing with his friend Jack and Cannon. They do that for a handful of seasons. They do it for the 0304, 0405, and 0506 seasons. Unbeknownst to Donaghy, Donaghy did not know where Jack and Cannon was actually placing the bets. He just knew that he told Jack, play this bet, pick this game. He had no idea where the money was being wagered or how. Well, what he didn't know was that Jack was wagering with uh, another person. All these people, by the way, are from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. Uh, and these people all know each other. And they have known each other for years. Well... When he placed bets with a particular professional gambler, that gambler was betting offshore, and a betting syndicate that used to be called the Animals, or a handful of guys now had nicknames that were all animals. And the betting syndicate was actually seeing, wait a second, Jack and Cannon is usually no better or worse than any other gambler. They typically lose. And then all of a sudden, they realized that his bets on certain NBA games are winning at a very high rate. And not only that, Jack usually only bets a little bit on most NBA games, but on these particular games, he's betting way more and they're winning. And of course, it doesn't take them long to do a little research and go, oh my goodness, those are games being officiated by Tim Donaghy. And they knew that Jack and Kennedy and Tim Donaghy were friends. So they just start copying the bets. There's no conspiracy, there's no plot. It's just smart gambling, and they start betting a fortune, whatever they could bet, 
on any individual game starting sometime in the 03 season. So this gambling syndicate copies the bets throughout the 0304, 06 seasons. You flash forward to the fall of 2006. Tim Donaghy is complaining to a friend of his named Tommy Martino that Jack and Cannon is not paying off his betting wins. Well, unbeknownst to Donaghy, Martino was living with one of the professional gamblers who had been copying the bets for the last three years. And the professional, professional gambler's name was Jimmy Batista. Martino and Batista had been friends for years. So, of course, Martino arranges, uh, he realizes there's a problem here, and Batista says, well, hey, tell him he can bet with me. No problem, just set up a meeting. And they have the infamous meeting at the Philadelphia International Marriott in December of 2006, where Batista says, yeah, you can bet with me, I'll take your bets, but the only thing is you can no longer bet with Jack and Cannon. I don't, I don't lie, I control the betting lines offshore, I need to have control of the betting lines, and we can get into it for, for the people who don't follow gambling, which I did not before I took on this project back in 2008. Uh, I can explain what that means, but they, they have to control the market, no different than trying to control a stock, where they control the bets on a game. Well, they cut the deal in December of 06, and then from December of 06 until April of 2007, this triumvirate, Tim Donaghy, the professional gambler, Tommy Martino, the intermediary, and Jimmy Batista, the pro gambler, bet on Donaghy's games. And the games, of course, win their ridiculous clips. Martino's only involvement was that Donaghy would call Martino with his pick for that night's game or the next day's game. They didn't want to, the co-conspirators didn't want to be caught on the phone together. Donaghy didn't want to be on the phone with Batista and vice versa. So Tommy Martino was simply the intermediary. They used ridiculous rudimentary codes that anybody could have deciphered if they cared to supposedly shield their bets. And this goes on until April of 2007. And importantly, and this is where it's very complicated, but your overview question, um, Batista goes into drug rehab in March of 07. And another professional gambler takes over the scheme. But when he takes over the scheme, he realizes by then, don't forget, we're four years into the scandal, and the word is out now. They don't know the details of Donaghy's arrangements with gamblers or what's going on. They just know that the bets on Donaghy's games are winning at this ridiculous clip. So people chase the money. They literally simply copy the bets. And people having no involvement in this conspiracy just start copying the bets. And the betting lines move way too much. And so this new professional gambler, Pete Ruggieri is his name, he shuts the scheme down because he realizes that this whole house of cards is going to fall. The word is out. People know he's fixing games. People are all copying the bets. And not only that, as a professional gambler, he can no longer control the market because so many darn people are betting on these games. So Pete Ruggieri shuts the scheme down. Importantly for your audience, not Tim Donaghy, as you would be led to believe by something like Untold or some other media programs, not by the FBI and not by the NBA. A professional gamer named Pete Ruggieri shut the scheme down in April of 2007. So how many games did Tim Donaghy actually bet on over his four-plus years of the scandal? Hundreds. So he bet on hundreds of like, – from what I've read, it seemed like he was averaging – about 40 games a year that he was actually betting on. Yeah, it's, it, well, the thing is, he, um, 
I forget the exact record in 2000, and I did this a long time ago. I used to know the exact record of his betting wins and losses in 2000, just in the 2006-2007 uh, season alone. Um, yeah, and if you carry that over four seasons, you're getting in between 150 and 300 games, something like that. Batista's argument was once we caught on to this, he, he never missed a game. It's not like he took games off. He was betting every game. And there were a handful of games that Donnie wagered in the 06 07 season where he was not the official. And they were losers. And Batista said, I'm not taking those any longer. So if he was betting on basically every game that he was officiating for four years, how did he evade detection for so long from the NBA? Great question. I said earlier that the NBA audits all of these games. And the fact that Donaghy, well, he was two things as, a, as an official. He was highly rated, meaning that when the people looked at his game tapes, he was calling correct calls. So he was highly rated. But he was also known for calling the most calls. He was a very active referee. So if, as the professional gamblers explained to me when I was doing Game in the Game, if the referee was fixing the games by calling technically correct calls, well, they wouldn't get flagged because they're not incorrect calls. Um, and the other thing, too, is and if you do them earlier in the game, the theory was always, well, gosh, you, you would imagine that somebody in the NBA or the FBI would look at the end of games to see, well, maybe that's when a gambler would need to make sure that, the, well, the argument the pro gamblers made to me was, no, he was creating the environment at the beginning of games such that by the time you got to the end, the result was already no longer in doubt. And so with regard to how the NBA didn't detect it, a couple of things. First of all, they had no reason to check. He was, he was calling the correct calls. And by the way, here's a little footnote, and I have another thing to add to your question. If you ever go back and listen to Tim Donaghy's media tour back in 2009, um, when he got out of federal prison, he said this over and over again in almost every interview. I actually have a montage of it on my, on my website and my YouTube page where he says, I never made incorrect calls to advance my bets. Well, that's true. No one, is, no one is disputing that. It sounds like a compelling argument to people who don't know the story. They go, oh, gosh, the guy says he didn't make any wrong. Well, no one's saying he made wrong calls. People are saying he made technically correct calls that were strategic to advance his bets. That's a totally different thing. So that's number one. The other thing is uh, the NBA back then did not monitor betting lines. Now, for people who are listening to this who are not gamblers, as basically as I can say it, obviously, if two teams are playing, one team's a favorite, one team's an underdog. And generally speaking, in NBA games, if one team is favored by three points for argument's sake, and they have to win by three points, or and then you pick that team and they, they, they have to win by three points for you to win your bet. NBA um, betting lines, generally speaking, don't move much. They might move half of a point or one point. And serious gamblers, and of course sports books, all the people that have money in the game, they monitor these things for oddities, for anomalies. And in the professional gambling world, an NBA game that moves more than one point or one and a half points, the only reason that would happen is if a player is injured or a coach is out. There's something really remarkable. Those lines don't move that much. Whereas in an NFL game, where the betting line is available for seven full days between one game and the next, they move a good bit. But the NBA is not like that. They don't move ahead. Well, the reason I focus on the answer with regards to should the NBA have known why didn't they catch it? 
I defend the NBA in the 03 to 06 seasons just because betting lines were not crazy. They weren't moving a heck of a lot. And it's because the pro gamblers were only getting the bets after Jack and Cannon placed them. Well, when Donaghy cut his deal with Batista in December of 06, he changed the sociology of the scandal. He told them, look, I need those bets early because I'm going to manipulate the worldwide market. And it takes 12 hours to do that. So I want the picks the night before. So I can, and, and of course, I showed this in the appendix to give me the game. The betting lines change radically when Batista gets involved. And there are wild swings. And my point is, if the NBA really cared about this sort of stuff, like the NFL, the NFL always monitored betting lines. The NBA did not. Even if you weren't picking up on the court activity, that alone would have made somebody go, wait a second, we don't know what's going on with games officiated by Tim Donaghy, but the betting lines are off the charts. They're moving five point six foot. That trust me, that does not happen with NBA games. And so there, somebody should have noticed something. And by the way, by the way, you know, a listener should know by then, sports books had caught on and gamblers had caught on. So at some point during the 06, 07 season, somebody in the NBA should have at least raised a flag and said, okay, something's going on with this, this, this referee's games. And they never did. So how much money was actually being bet on these games that Tim Donahue was refing for people that either caught on or were in the, in the know? In your book, Gaming the Game, you mentioned that Jimmy Batista alone was betting one to $2 million per game. Yeah. Well, just to be clear, that's, that's true. Batista was, but that was not Batista's money. He was just a mover for the, Big poor gambler. So whether that was five hundred thousand for this person, half a million for that, you know, half the same thing. Definitely for another uh, million for somebody else. Uh, it's hard to know because it's an underground market. But yeah, I mean, look, definitely one to two million per game on Batista's end, and the other people, I don't know. I just know that hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of this thing were wagered and won. And I tell the one anecdote in the, in the book where one offshore sports book, don't forget, they're not regulated. Well, there's nothing stopping a sports, sports book offshore from posting a dating line for a donkey game that they know is going to get fixed, hoping that other sports books copy and chase that betting line. They know all the while that the real betting line number is three or four points below that, and they're actually betting that line themselves at the other sports book. You know, we really had that happen in the scandal. And so if you've got control of the market like that one sports books did, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars that, that, that sports book made. So the figures are staggering. In the footnotes of your book, Aiming the Game, you wrote, quote, I should note that one respected pro gambler, not prone to hyperbole, believes a colleague of his somehow privy to Batista's picks on games Donahue was officiating as early as 2003, was wagering in the neighborhood of $2 million every game, and earned more than $200 million by the end of the scandal. End of quote from your footnotes. So who actually benefited the most and who made that $200 million? I would love to tell you, but I could not tell you. I, I know who it is, but I, I, I could never get into that. But yeah, and but that's what I'm saying. Just between Batista's pro gamblers for whom he moved and, and that particular individual, you are talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and, and the funny thing is, Tim Donaghy, until Gaming the Game was published in 2011, he knew none of this. He just knew he was getting his $5,000 a game from Batista. He had no idea how much he was influencing the world market of betting. 
So, Sean, the story was first leaked to the public in July of 2007 by the New York Post. Murray Weiss, the Post reporter who broke the story, he would not reveal the source of who leaked it to him. Had this story not become public, the FBI was planning to have Tim Donahue wear a wire to investigate potential other referees that were involved. A month before the story broke, the FBI actually met with the NBA, including David Stern, the then commissioner, to discuss Tim Donahue betting on his own games. For most people, some of the main questions are, were there other refs involved at the NBA? No. Did the NBA leak the story? And was the NBA afraid that other refs would be involved? It seems like they had the most to gain by leaking the story. Who do you think leaked the story? And what are the implications of it being leaked mean? Wow, there's a lot there. With regard to who leaked the story... I disagree with what Untold said about this and what other uh, people who are whistleblower podcasts said the same thing. I don't, obviously you can't rule out the conspiracy that the NBA did it for their own interests, but there are a million people who could, by then, don't forget, this, this is what people keep forgetting. The scandal's been going on for four years by then. Dozens of people are actively involved every day on the scandal betting. People by then already have defense attorneys. So the idea that there's this tiny knit of people, including David Stern and whomever, who could have leaked it. The universe of people who could have leaked this is much larger than people realize. So I, that's why I don't go there, because we don't know. But I just don't like that people rule out. There's a much more innocent explanation. So you have to realize, I, my world is nothing but this. I don't know what percentage of my files, 50%, 70% of my files are leaked to me. They're not from FIA requests, they're from people in law enforcement who are upset that a story is not being covered correctly or covered at all, and they know that I'm hell-bent on getting the truth out. So uh, it could be a lot of people, so I don't I don't get into the whole conspiracy stuff. And by the way, with regard to the NBA, uh, pardon me, the FBI supposedly going to wire Donaghy to go other, other after other referees, don't forget, the argument was never that other NBA referees were fixing games. Nobody has ever said that. The argument was that they were gambling in casinos or elsewhere, which is a violation of their contract with the NBA. That was Donaghy's shrewd ploy to deflect from him. His whole point was, no, yeah, everyone's gambling. Well, yeah. You're big boys and girls. We get that other people are gambling, but that's not the issue. The issue is, A, you're gambling on games you're officiating, and B, you're fixing them. No one's making any of those arguments about other people. So, uh, to me, conspiratorial and sensational journalists have taken those slivers of sort of truth. Yes, the NBA, because at the time the FBI was considering that, they didn't really know anything about the scandal. So they were considering all sorts of things. But the allegation wasn't that other people were fixing games. And by the way, you should know, I described this in detail in Game in the Game, the public gets this wrong, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing the public, they can't know this. The FBI looked at this as a pain-in-the-neck investigation. For people who would be thinking, my gosh, the FBI would love the ability to break a major scandal in one of the four major sports. That's not how it went down. The FBI organized crime unit in New York hears about this secondhand because mobsters are making money on the scandal. It's not a mob-driven scandal. They just, by, by April of 07, all sorts of people are making money on the scandal. And I always use the joke, 
if we found out that insurance salespeople were copying the bets, would we say this is an insurance scandal? Well, when people say this is a mob scandal, that's what they're doing. Yeah, mobsters were making money on the bets just like dozens of other people by the time the scandal was over because word was out. Well, anyway, they, they make this discovery. So the mob guys in New York, the organized crime FBI guys, they get involved in the investigation assuming it's an organized crime scheme. Well, they discover quickly, early on, this wasn't months, this was days or weeks after the scandal hit their, hit their desk, they realized, oh my gosh, it's white-collar professional gamblers in the suburbs of Philly, which means a couple of things. Again, from the FBI agent's perspective, now they got to drive an hour and a half or two hours down to the Philly suburbs all the time, and it's not really what they do. It's just a nuisance case. And once Tim Donaghy approached them to plead guilty, Shrewd move on this far, by the way, because the way it works, and again, I described this in the book, the way it works is because his co-conspirators don't talk to the FBI, his word for a good period of time carries the day. And the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office spends a lot of time and energy tracking down his deflections and his conspiracy theories. This is all a major waste of resources for organized crime prosecutors and FBI agents whose job is to crack major racketeering conspiracies, murders, all that stuff. So once they had Tim Donaghy plead guilty, and once the other two conspirators were willing to plead guilty, like, okay, we're done. We really went done with this. Whereas I, as a researcher, I have different motivations. They have to worry about wasting taxpayer money, and they have other cases that they've got to try that are more important than this. I don't. I wanted to know where was the money moved, how many people were involved, did it influence games, were games fixed, how could you prove that? The FBI didn't care about any of that, and I think the public doesn't understand that. They, they, the FBI guys looked at it, we've got a lot of other cases to deal with. This is interesting, but not important. And once the conspirators are going to plead guilty, okay, I'm done with that. And by the way, the other thing, too, was uh, the way it works when it comes to a criminal case, uh, when it got to sentencing, when the people pleaded guilty, well, the victim in these cases has a role in the sentencing. Well, the victim in this case was the NDA. And once the NDA agreed to whatever the restitution figure was going to be, the case is over. There again, conspiratorial people say, aha, the NBA wanted the cons- they, they were fine with the restitution because they, they wanted this to go away. Well, let's be serious. I study red collar crime for a living. I can walk you through a thousand examples. So just look at my bookshelves. There are thousands of examples of corporations that purposely say, yes, I'm not such a big fan of employee X. We don't believe everything he's saying, but yeah, we're done with that. We're not going to fight that to the 10th power. No, we're done with that. So it doesn't, it's not conspiratorial to cover up something at crime on the NBA's part to make a good business decision. It's okay, we're done with this. Like when Game of the Game came out, the NBA was asked for, well, first of all, they refused to cooperate with me as did the NBA Referees Association. But when the book came out, a reporter from ESPN asked David Stern, the commissioner at the time, at the NBA All-Star game that year, hey, what do you think about Game of the Game? And he, of course, said he hadn't read it and that he would look into it. Of course, they never, they just purposely didn't get into it. But my point is, I don't argue that because they shrewdly didn't address the damning conclusions in the game. That's not a conspiracy. It's good business. So was Tim Donahue simply gambling on the games he was refing, or was he actually fixing these games? Yeah. Well, 
all the pro gamblers, the only reason the pro gamblers were involved is because they were convinced he was fixing games because they else could you get to this outrageous conclusion. You can't win 78.7% of your games just by chance. And so anyway, that's why they were copying the bets. And they all, and the other thing too is the handful of games in the 06 07 season where Donnie tried betting on other people's games were losers. So if it really was, Donnie's argument all along was, oh no, I had access to inside information, that I would be in the bowels of the arena and I would hear about who was out that day and who was injured and who didn't feel good or who was out too late the night before with your girlfriend. Well, first of all, his bets on games he didn't win were losers. And secondly, the betting in the 06 07 season required Donnie to provide the picks to Batista the night before. Well, he wasn't in the bowels of the arena getting ready for the game, getting this inside information. That's what put the big game before. So there's no, there's no way to prove an official fixes games. There's another argument that people have about, about the FBI. People say, oh, because the FBI didn't prove Donnie fixed games, that means he didn't fix games. Well, first of all, the FBI never tried to do that. The extent of what the FBI did early on in the investigation was have a handful of FBI agents look at game tape. But, but pause and think about that for a second. What would an FBI agent know about what the game is meant to look like if a referee was fixing games? That's, that's number one. It's no knock on the FBI agents, but how would they know? But secondly, when Donnie approached the FBI, he told them something important. He said, I don't remember which games I bet on. Okay, well, stop. Again, if you're an FBI agent and your goal is to figure out, we're going to watch game tape to figure out if you fix games. First of all, you don't know what games to review. And secondly, you don't know who he picked and what the betting line was. So how could you assess anything? It's an absurd claim. So when I wrote Game in the Game, the reason there's an appendix, the whole point of the appendix was to try and resolve that issue. How many different ways could you show he fixed games? Whether it's the words of his co-conspirators, the words of people who ran sports books, the words of other professional gamblers. Now people will say, okay, well, those are just words. They're subjective. And, you know, it's, even though, by the way, they're not just subjective. They had money on these games. So it's not just their words, but whatever. So then I got into all the betting line data. That, to me, was the most compelling. I had access to things other people didn't. First of all, I had Batista's laptop. So I had all his time-stamped, irrefutable electronic bets, where you could show the pattern of the bets, where they were placed, how much money and when, which, again, you can only do over the course of a full day or day and a half. They're not happening with Tim Donaghy, as he claims, contacting Tommy Martino from the bowels of the arena late in the morning or early afternoon of the game. That wasn't what's happening. That's not what the bet showed. And the betting lines can't move that much in that period of time. That's number one. But then secondly, I had access to betting lines for all the major sports books, for all the relevant seasons, where you could show, well, what does a betting line move look like for a regular NBA game not officiated by Tim Donaghy? And then what do those look like for games refereed by Tim Donaghy? And sure enough, there's a difference. And then I get to the 06 07 season because, again, if Donaghy is not using anything other than inside information, he's not fixing games, well, the change in the sociology of the bets in 06 07 shouldn't matter that much because, his, according to him, his activity hasn't changed. 
Well, my argument on that is if pro gamblers say, no, it changed a lot. Well, sure enough, if you look at the appendix, and I looked at those major betting lines, they don't just move, they skyrocket in 06, 07, because now everyone knows what's going on. So there's there's no way to prove Tim Donnie fixed game, short of him admitting it. And even then, by the way, that really wouldn't be proving anything, because for all we know, he wants to sell books or sell a movie. I'm, I'm saying I have gamblers sometimes and sports fans say, oh, that's ridiculous. I could sit down with you and watch game tape and prove it. Prove. I'm talking in a legal sense. I'm talking going to a jury or going to a judge and proving it. And that's just, that's almost impossible to do. You have to know so much before you even started looking. Yeah, this scandal broke in 2007. And so we're talking basically, what, 16 years ago. The document, or again, quote-unquote documentary on Netflix came out in 2022. Tim Donahue's book came out in 2009. Your book came out, I believe, in 2011. And there are a lot of other players in this besides just Batista and Martino and Tim Donahue. But why is it that Tim Donahue's version has become the mainstream accepted version when he, of course, he has every reason to lie? If he were to be like, oh, yeah, I fixed these games, he'd still be in jail. He would, right? He would, I mean, he had, he has the most to gain by lying. Okay. Uh, there's a lot to say in response to that. But the last point you said, if he told the truth and said he fixed games, he would still be in prison. And there's a reason for that. Again, I am assuming your audience does not know this. He pleaded guilty to fraud, to defrauding his employer. It's called honest services fraud. So he defrauded his employer and didn't give them his honest services. Well, the way fraud is sentenced, it's based on loss to the victim. Well, just process that for a second. If Tim Donaghy pleaded guilty to defrauding the NBA for dozens of games every season for four NBA seasons, you're not just defrauding the NBA, as in the entity the NBA. You're defrauding players, managers, coaches, stockholders, season ticket holders, all the people who lost an accurate portrayal on the court. And so the actual losses would have been staggering. And again, the fraud, the sentencing for fraud would have been based on the loss to the victims, plural victims, not just the amount of victims. It would have been insane. So he was never going to plead guilty to that. And with regard to why his story is predominant, a few reasons. First and foremost, he was first. And if anyone follows me on Twitter, um, I, I try and be academic. I, I don't. I generally don't curse on Twitter. I, I don't do gotcha stuff. I'm usually polite. The only times I'm not polite is when I'm dealing with people in the media. And it's not just people in the media. People in the media with an attitude. I don't blame Tim Donaghy for doing what he's doing. He's a con man. I study con men for a living. I get that. I don't get people taking a microphone to a, a career con man and a convicted felon and saying, hey, Tim, tell us what happened. I don't, I don't ever understand that. That makes no sense to me. And by the way, I don't mind people interviewing him, but that's not what happens. These are essentially um, promo videos. They're, they're not interviews. There's no, like you, throughout this interview, you have cited statistics. You, you cite quotes. Nobody does that with Donnie. They just find his story so fascinating and compelling. They just say, awesome, tell me more. And they giggle and they laugh. And no one says, guys, just so you know, this was adjudicated in court in 07, and then when his book came out in 09, a handful of us, I was probably the most public, but there were a handful of people who debunked a lot of that stuff. 
And and by the way, the other thing too is for your audience to understand this. When I say it's debunked, I mean I am either speaking to you now or I'm not. I'm not talking about subjective stuff. There's a ton of those examples too. I restrict my criticisms. I have a whole I have a whole section of my website. If you want to see this, SeanPatrickGriffin.net. There's an entire section of my website which does nothing but debunk Tim Donaghy's claims. I didn't want to be accused of being a grifter when I was on all these radio, uh, TV, and podcast shows and be promoting Game of the Game. And I would always say, okay, look, take me out of it. Take Game of the Game out of it. With regard to proving that he's a pathological liar, just go on my website. There's an entire section, and every time there's a claim, I have the evidence and the links to debunk it. And so I don't, and I was partly done because I, I would have people in the media tell me, well, Sean, you have all the time in the world to do this, which I don't, by the way. I do have a wife, and I've got other research projects, and I teach and all that sort of stuff. But I get it. I know that they've got deadlines for five stories this week. So I got that. But, but that doesn't excuse them from taking the word of a career con man pathological liar and printing it as news without checking the facts. So I used to always say, okay, fine. You don't have time to review the course case files like I did in an interview. But okay, fine. You don't have time to read game the game. No problem. Well, Here's an entire part of a website where I don't want to hear you tell me any longer that you don't have time to do some basic fact-checking on a, a history that was literally resolved 15 years ago. Uh, it's just, it's maddening. But it's sexy. And the thing is, I have had people tell me uh, off-air, look, it gets clicks, it gets views, it gets ratings. And my argument with that is, I'm, you're reasonable. Okay, I get it. It makes business sense. But... I don't think their listeners or their readers know that. The hosts don't tell people that. That's my issue. You know, if we're going to do that, all right, I got it. You know, uh, I'm not, I'm not naive, but the people think they're getting a newsworthy product, which is why I'm grabbing these quotes around the Untold documentary, because that's that's not what that is. And incidentally. I argue that's the worst one of those to date because that was produced a few years ago. I was involved in that typically speaking all these projects whether it's the whistleblower podcast years ago or untold because i have all the files and i have all the stuff people do consult with me so i get a, a sense of where these things are going and i told the lead producer of that show early on when he told me the arc of the show and what they're doing and i said well the, the title of the show is untold well based on what you're telling me Everything's been told. I've, everyone knows what Tim Donaghy's versions of events is. So what is untold? And, and what made that worse was because, partly because of me and, and others. They got access to documents and to people. So they couldn't even bring like, ignorance as an excuse like some people could back in 07, 08, 09 when things were hot and it was fast. Okay, fine. In the fog of war, we're no longer in the fog of war. People like me and others have written a ton and produced a ton of documents you don't have to have the excuse of ignorance. So now they're making a conscious decision to tell a BS story for the sake of clicks, news, and ratings. That, that's why that show bothers the heck out of me. And the problem, too, is if people see it, it looks awesome. It is a really polished show. It's, when you look at it on TV, it looks incredible. And it's fake. It's purposely fake. Why is Tim Donahue's viewpoint more quote-unquote sexy than the truth basically he was fixing games isn't that even say sexier than his version which is basically he had you know inside information because of the fact that he was a ref it seems like it's actually less salacious 
his version than the actual, say, reading your book or ESPN's analysis on it or, or Bill Simmons, someone like that? Well, I, first of all, obviously, I selfishly agree with you. I, I've always made the joke. Isn't the fact that an NBA referee fixed games over four NBA seasons sexy enough? Like, that's, that's an absurd, crazy story. And most people who think they know the story don't even know that. They, they think instead that Donahue version, which is that the NBA was dictating outcomes and continues to dictating outcomes. So the conspiracy that I'm talking about is peanuts compared to the idea that the almighty NBA, the league, is telling referees who to call fouls on, whether it's against star players or for star players, what markets want to be valued better, all that stuff. And the thing is, I've written about this too, Donnie tapped into a pre-existing confirmation bias among NBA fans. There's an entire subculture of people who believe this forever. And if you ever go look at reviews of Tim Donaghy's book, there's a lot of that. I knew it. I knew this was happening. And now I got, they really do believe this. He's feeding into this monster that existed even before him. Um, so that's, that's part of it. The other thing, too, is Donnie really taps into people who like victimology. If, you, if Donnie's view of the world is he was a victim of the NBA because they made him do all these sorts of things. He's a victim of addiction. So if you don't know, he's actually been on a, an addiction circuit. He's talked to addiction, gambling addiction crowds. He does that on most interviews. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I made bad choices. Yeah, he, he does it really well. So he's a genius at this. I always say that Tim Donahue would be a politician campaign manager's dream candidate because that guy can stay on message, man. Don't say the same things that tap into the same people all the time. And so his story, as he tells it, is compelling. He was a victim of the FBI. He's, he's, a, he's a victim. You know, he made bad choices, and then everything else was negative against him. Like, by the way, he'll also tell you he, he didn't write his book for money. And he wrote stuff to help people. He was told he had a good message. Why was he involved in a feature film a couple of years ago, even though he's not involved? Because I heard that they were helpful with charities. Why is he doing Untold? Because see, he's, he's, it's never because, no, I want my story out and I want to get paid. In your, your book, Gaming the Game, for those that haven't read it, the main character is really Jimmy Batista, who is a, a professional gambler. And he actually did the exact same jail time as Tim Donahue, who is fixing the games. But can you talk a little bit about Batista? And also, like, would, if Batista never got wrapped up in the Donahue thing, would he have gone to jail? Like, was his gambling illegal? Or was he sh- shady, not shady? Kind of talk about Jimmy Batista. Yeah, yeah. Batista is a fascinating guy. And I'm about, when I say is, I, I dealt with Batista from, you know, whatever, 07 until... 2011, 2012, and of course, you know, life goes on, and I've talked to him every once in a while, so I don't want to speak for him currently. I don't know what he's doing lately. I don't, you know, we don't converse. So, but back in the day, the era that we we're talking about when he was a professional gambler, and by the way, I keep using the term professional gambler. For your audience, I did not do this for a living. I would do white collar crime research, organized crime research. When I first heard the term professional gambler, I honestly didn't know what they meant. They mean people who literally gamble for a living. They bet large sums of money, and importantly, they claim it on their taxes. So even though we have now legalized sports gambling in this country as of a few years ago, 
the era we're talking about, it was blatantly illegal. And yet, these poor gamblers, if you read their IRS tax returns, their occupation was professional gambler. Now, some people might think that's crazy, that they're admitting to an illegal activity. Their argument was they feared a tax evasion charge far more than an illegal gambling charge, which was a misdemeanor, slap on the wrist. Tax evasion, federal crime, hard time, they wanted to know part of that. And it also tells you, it tells your audience, people don't really care about gambling. They weren't, they weren't cracking down on gambling back then. Maybe they would make a big arrest every so often, but, you know, and any pro gamblers just considered that the cost of doing business. So anyway, Batista was a professional gambler. In his case, that did not mean that he was the expert. He wasn't the person doing the analysis of the games. He didn't anything. All his job was, in the industry, it's called, it was called a mover. He moves money. So... A professional gambler who might have a research team or a computer algorithm that allows him to bet at a very high rate, such that he bets for a living and bets tens of thousands of dollars a day. He needs somebody like Jimmy Batista as a mover to get the bets down. A little complicated, I'll try and do this as briefly as I can. The only way big-time gamblers make money, it's not enough to have the correct side of a betting proposition. You need to have a way to get a lot of money on that side. Well, sports books limit the amount of money any particular person can bet on any particular betting proposition, especially if they know you're, if they know you're a sharp gambler, if they know you're a sharp smart better. Well, the, the key then is having somebody like a Jimmy Batista, who his job is to say, okay, Jimmy, I want a million dollars on the Philadelphia Eagles next weekend, minus three. Well, that one million might get 50,000 beer, 100,000 there, whatever. But the key thing is, it's not just that you have to spread it. It's all got to be bet fairly quickly. Because, again, everyone's got computer algorithms. So they're going to start picking up on the money overall that's being wagered on that side of the bet. And the betting line will move, which they don't want. They need to get that million dollars down at that number before the line moves. Batista's expertise was that he had people all over the world that he could call or send an email to or click on a live website to get those things down quickly. It, there's a skill to that. And it's also a trust factor. There are a lot of shady people in that line of work where you can't say, here's a million dollars or here's my access code to my offshore betting account. You can't do that. You know, Jimmy Batista showed up one time and was trustworthy, and that's why the world's biggest gamblers like him having him as their mover. And so by the time we got to the NBA betting scandal, he was moving for four of the biggest sports gamblers in the world. And as he said, part of the reason he started struggling in his personal life by the time the NBA betting scandal happened, he should have only bet with one guy or two guys. It was just too much. Because, as I said earlier, this has to happen quickly. Well, they're working around the clock. And don't forget, they're also international. So it's not as though this was never a nine-to-five job anyway. Well, now it's international, and if somebody is calling you, your boss is calling you, like, hey, I need this done in the next 15 minutes or up, he had a year of life and kids. So his whole life was chaos. But um, as to whether he would have done time for the gambling, probably not. I don't know of a single other case where someone who did what he was doing wound up getting arrested for it. What he would have gotten arrested for, which is still illegal, by the way, even though we've legalized sports gambling in the United States, betting offshore, still illegal, and especially bringing the money that you make offshore back onshore is crazy illegal. And that's typically where people run into trouble. 
that network, there's, there's a network of people in the United States that move the money from the East Coast to the West, and there's an intermediate port in the Southeast. That, that network of money movers still exists. That's what you would get arrested for, tax evasion or money laundering. It wouldn't be the gambling charge per se. And in case you're saying, well, now that, now that sports games being legalized in the United States, wouldn't that go away? No, because that's where the big money is. The big money is so offshore. Right. So if if this would have been, you mentioned the, you know, the legalization of sports gambling, which was in 2018. Right. So if this would have happened, say, today, he still would have to have a guy like Batista. He couldn't just create his own anonymous account online and, and do it himself. He still would have to use movers. And so nothing would actually change between 2007 and 2023. No, because he's, he's not going to be able to go to the MGA, MGM in Vegas or to the Parks Casino in Pennsylvania and put $100,000 down or five. That's just not happening. The only people who take that kind of action are offshore sports books. Right. And you mentioned that there's still more illegal money on gambling than legal money. And in your book, you talk about how Batista would start his betting by betting on the wrong side because he wanted to get the point to move down. Plus, he wanted to put more money on it. Can you kind of explain that process? Yeah, they're called head fakes. By the way, if people in your audience are interested in, obviously, I explain all this in detail on the end of the game. One of the, if not the world's most popular and consequential sports better, but one of them is a person named Lou Walters. He wrote a book this last year. He doesn't get into the... If you're a game in the game, I actually explain how this happens. Only reason I'm talking about Billy's book is because he confirms what I wrote about Hitfix. He loves Hitfix. These big-time pro gamblers, they don't like people copying their bets. Well, one of the ways to get people to stop copying their bets, which hurts your ability to make money, is to put them on the wrong side of a bet. And they'll do what are called Hitfix, which is purposely bet on the wrong side and we know that people are copying the bets and they'll chase, it's called chasing the money. And the betting line will move, and so you're to what you said. So Batista would put, I give one great example in the book, where Batista wound up betting around $200,000 on one side of the bet. And then when the betting line moved enough, he put almost $2 million on the other side, which is actually, that was actually the number he wanted all along. And that does two things. It, it gets people to stop copying their bets, but it also gives you the best odds and the best amount of money to make. So, yeah, they're, they're called net fakes, and for pro gamblers, they're common. And by the way, one of the things that was funny when I looked into the game, I spent a lot of time with these pro gamblers. And they're friendly, but they're also competitors. And they would literally be sitting with me at their computers, and they'd say, hey, watch this. And they would put a fake bet in knowing that their buddy monitors that particular sports book. And they were, they were convinced, no, he's going to watch this. So-and-so is going to chase this line. And sure enough, right away, they chase it. And you would text them in front of me, gotcha. Like, they, that, that's, that, that's that world. They literally are monitoring betting lines. They just are stuck to that computer screen. You know, by the way, some people think when people talk about sports betting, that they're monitoring weather or injuries. There's some of that, but a lot of it's just math. They're just looking at the numbers. And they know what numbers work, what numbers are more likely to get, which numbers pay more. They, they know that like this. And so they're just looking at screens and numbers. Do you think this whole scandal, do you think this is a common occurrence? Or do you think that he was a rogue referee doing it? You mentioned before, he was one of the highest graded NBA referees. If it wasn't for the fact that there was such large amounts of money on it and just some chance with the Gambino family, he wouldn't have got busted. 
And you I mean you, this was going to go on for years. It's never going to get detected. Do you think it's common in other sports and the NBA today? I, I here's the thing. I, well, to our knowledge, it's rare. He's the only person that we could ever think of. I think, well, first of all, nowadays, now that sports gambling is legalized in the United States and it's already been legalized throughout most of the Western world, they, we've never had more eyes on these. We've never collected more data. So it's less likely now than it ever was. Uh, by the way, the public gets that wrong, in my opinion. People say, oh, my gosh, there's going to be more money bet now, so the likelihood of a scandal is higher. I don't think that's true. I think that there's never been more pressure and scrutiny on leagues, on players, on everybody, because so many people are monitoring it and we're down. We have so much data, it's insane. So if somebody foot falls three times in a tennis match and they haven't done that in five years, that gets flagged. Like we're collecting data like crazy now. So I think it's unlikely now. As to whether it was happening before, I don't think so. The only because. This doesn't sound counterintuitive to people who don't do what I do for a living. You'd be shocked how much I write about because people can't stop bragging to me about what criminals they are. Hustlers need people to know how important they are. The mystical person who is able to either organize crime or commit fraud at a high level and not know about, and then people not know, that is very, very rare. You know, when people ask me, they'll rattle off in my organized crime class, they'll rattle off the top 10 gangsters of all time, and they'll say, who's the most influential gangster ever? And my mentor used to always say, you know who that is? The person who's sitting on a beach somewhere with an umbrella in their drink, laughing about the fact that you and I are talking about John Gotti, Carlo Giannino, or what else. You know, they're the ones who got caught, served time, and got killed. Meanwhile, they're all sure. They're the ones that you should be focusing on, not these. And so with regards to this, it's hard to believe that there's been active uh, referees in any of the four sports who have been doing this and we didn't, we didn't catch it. And by the way, when I say catch it, I don't mean prove it. I mean, even knew about it. I did stuff on Russian organized crime years ago on the NHL and had nothing to do with officials. So yeah, it's, I don't know how possible. I just know that in my line of work, we've never heard of it. In the gambling world, there are people who study gambling for a living. It's not really what I do, but I'm familiar with those people. They've never heard of it, so it's hard to believe. Yeah, anytime you research this topic, Scott Foster comes up. And between 2000, the 2006 and 2007 NBA season, him and Donahue had 134 phone calls. 54 of those were either right before or right after a game. And by the way, Scott Foster is still a current NBA referee. What do you think his connection was with Donahue? Well, here's the thing. We study whether he was fixing games like Donahue or whatever. There's no evidence of that. And betting line ones games didn't work because people aren't betting them. So there's no real evidence of that. One thing that people have, to my knowledge, never considered, I, and incidentally, I, when I say everybody, the NBA and the FBI, I don't think they consider this either. People didn't consider the fact that Scott Foster may have been betting on Tim Donaghy's games, that he was getting the picks from Donaghy. And my argument all along is, well, that's bad enough. We don't want an NBA official betting on an earlier, another NBA official's games that are fixed. That would be bad enough, but no one's even asked the question. They're focused on Scott Foster fixing games. Well, that wasn't happening. No one was betting on Scott Foster's games. Uh, so I, I think the more innocent and more likely explanation is that he was simply copying the bets on Donnie's games. And by the way, the FBI never asked him that. And by the time my book came out, that was all resolved. 
So no one really ever pressured Foster to answer that question. Overall, there's billions of dollars. What do they say? The sports gambling is like a five, six hundred billion dollar a year industry. But in your book, Gaming the Game, you basically say that they couldn't possibly put any more money on these games. Like they had as much money as could be. How much money was actually overall being bet on one of these games? And why Why was there not enough money to go around to have? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the market is only so big. So I, I said earlier that I give an example of a book where I actually walk the reader through an actual day of the Teach the Day and games where it starts two million thousand on one side and two million on the other. Well, the thing is, don't forget, the only way a sports book can make money on these things is if I if they take a two million dollar bet from Sean Patrick Griffin, well, they now have to get two million dollars on the other side of the bet in case I win. Their whole goal is to get betting equal on both sides, and then they get the 10% being, you know, the 10% charge in the middle. So the sports book will only take so much of that. That's why the great quote in the book that you're referencing is there wasn't enough money in the market for what we were trying to do. That's the quote. And it's because they would bet even more, but sports books wouldn't take the bets because they couldn't get people on the other side of the bets. Do you think there's a comparison between the stock market and sports gambling? Well, we hope that the stock market is more heavily regulated than offshore sports betting, but with example after example, whether it's FBF or whatever, we, we see Flinger or whatever. I mean, there are so many examples in the stock market. You know, wait, no one was paying attention to this? How, how is this allowed to happen for years? The problem with the offshore sports betting market, it's not regulated at all. It really is the wild, wild west. So, you know, and, and by the way, this happens. The pro gamers will tell you, they're not excited about it, but they factor in their business having a certain amount of money stolen every so often. Oh, that account just got shot down, and you can't go to somebody and sue. You can't approach a regulator that, oh, we got screwed. It's just on the honor system, essentially. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I'll put it this way the pro gamblers would tell you they think that the sports betting market is more ethical than the stock market. I don't have an opinion on that. I can only say that the one is one's regulated and one's not. Yeah, I was watching an interview with Tim Donahue, and I think he said that Jimmy Batista has to send him a restitution check every month. Why is Jimmy Batista paying Tim Donahue for? What is he giving him restitution for? Uh, you know, this was after I wrote the book. This happened years after Game of the Game was published. So I, I have a vague idea of what this is. When they, when, when the three men pleaded guilty with the NBA, the NBA came in with a restitution figure. And I don't remember exactly how the judge split it, but they, they took this, whatever this dollar figure was, and they split it three ways. Well, Donnie apparently paid his off I don't know if Martino, I think I think Donnie also paid Martino's off. Again, I, this is, I'm, I'm doing this by two degrees of separation here. But then Batista was not able to pay his. He was on a payment plan. And Donnie wanted access to his pension. And they said they wouldn't give him access to his pension. Again, I'm basing this loosely on things I've heard him say on podcasts and interviews. Unless Batista had paid off uh, his restitution. Uh, and so... And and so somehow Batista agreed to pay Donnie for the restitution. So Batista literally sends Donnie checks. But by the way, I want to say something that so I don't know I don't know the details of what you're asking. I know that's how it started. I know it had something to do with Donnie wanting access to something, and because Batista hadn't paid off the restitution, Donnie couldn't get something. But just I want you to think about this. 
Tim Donaghy has said since 2009 that Jimmy Batista was a Gambino crime family member who threatened his wife and kids. And yet, here we are in the late 2019, whatever year it was, 2019, 2018, 2020, where Donaghy is texting Batista all the time, hey, can you send me that check? Now, just think through how absurd that is. Do you think a judge, a probation officer, says, yes, we're going to make an extortion victim in Donaghy's view of the world, right? An extortion victim in Donaghy deal with the person who wanted to kill his family? What, what are you talking about? It's crazy. Like, people just really don't think through how absurd this is. So when Donaghy says that on these podcasts or these radio interviews, I keep waiting for one host to say, wait, Jimmy Batista, isn't that the guy who, like, 15 minutes earlier in this interview said threaten your wife and kids and is going to visit Florida and kill them and kill you? And now you're talking to him and chumming with him and inviting him to movie premieres and trying to get him involved in a documentary and you'll pay him the next amount of money? Like, that guy? It's just all BS. That's why I can't I, I, I can't believe more people don't see how absurd this whole thing is. Well, and, and like you mentioned, I mean, the, the judge... Said that never happened. You got Martina, who was there at the time, never, you know, says that never happened. But of course, if, if, uh, I mean, that's a big part of Donahue's lie. If, if that changes, then his whole reason for gambling on his games would, would be a farce. Yes, yes. Well, the other thing too is, like you say, the judge, the judge not only said that the extortion not happened, she held Donahue in the court. It was more culpable than Martina and, and Batista. And by the way, the other thing too is, for, again, for your audience doesn't know this, Donnie says in his book and in all these ridiculous interviews that the gambling ended, the scandal ended when Jimmy Batista went in rehab on March 17, 2007, because the mob no longer had the grip on him. They no longer was in fear of the mob. Well, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, the scandal didn't end when Batista went into rehab. It continued with Pete Ruggieri until Ruggieri shut it down four or five games later. And... And you probably know this, Jesse. It doesn't. It, when, when Tommy Martino says, "Hey, D- hey, Tim, Pete's shutting the steam down," Donnie freaks out and begs for one more game. But this is the guy, mostly your audience, who's never heard the story before. Thanks, wait. No, no, no. He was glad that Batista went to rehab because the mob was no longer involved. They don't even know that none of that's true. That the judge said he was more culpable, and that in fact. Batista's plea agreement is only through March of 07 because he went and drove that. For everyone else, whether it's Martino, Donaghy, Ruggieri, and other people that public doesn't even know about, their proffered statements and their plea agreements are through April because it did go on. And Sean, I mean, you you mentioned a little bit earlier before when we were talking about the restitution, but it seems like you kind of alluded to the fact that that so Tim Donahue is still collecting a pension from the NBA. A guy that fixed games and got kicked out for illegal gambling is still getting paid by the NBA. Is this correct? I, I, I don't know if he's getting his pension. I know he was fighting. I know there was an argument over it and that restitution had something to do with it. So like I say, game of the game, I know that stuff cold and I can talk to anybody about that. But what happened in the soap opera that is Tim Donaghy afterward, I have vague ideas, but I'm not quite sure. How much money do you think he's getting paid for that Netflix mockumentary or whatever whatever we want to call it? I don't know. Um, I know Batista was offered, uh, it was in the tens of thousands of dollars. So I don't know, maybe Donaghy got more, but it was not insignificant. And what what sport do you think would be the easiest for an official to fix. It seems like any sport where there's heavy involvement, the NBA, basketball, I mean, they're 
heavily involved. The NFL football, again, they're very heavily involved. In Donahue's book, he would even just say, like, you know, you want to give the most important player on a team a couple quick fouls in the first quarter. You basically are affecting that whole game. If Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant is sitting on the bench with two fouls in the first quarter, that's going to drastically change the score. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. I'll say this, though, as far as I don't know what league or what sport is most susceptible, but one thing people didn't focus on originally, I think they're finally coming around to this, because I, I, when I was giving lectures, when I was traveling a lot of years ago when the game came out, I was lecturing a lot of college students, and my argument was I think people better start paying attention to fantasy sports because most people like you and I are focusing on game outcomes. And just, you know, for your readers and listeners who don't know, it is true that you can bet a lot more money on a game outcome than you can, can on things that happen during the game. But I can much more influence being able to say, hey, look, miss five free throws, free throws today. Hey, have five footfalls in the next tennis match. Because, again, how that's sort of trivial. By the way, that player may still win their game. But I still in my bet. That way, you know, it's a win-win. I'm not asking them to throw a game. I'm not, you know, whatever. I'm just, it's, it's like a nuisance thing in the game. Those prop bets, and the argument was, well, yeah, go better. People who were involved in the hustle wouldn't do that because they couldn't get enough money down on all that. Nowadays, with so many options of betting, yeah, it would be a pain in the neck. Don't get me wrong. Instead of someone like Batista placing 20 bets or 50, yeah, maybe you'd have to bet 100. But if you can set up your computers to look for certain things, you know, for certain movements and whatever, I don't know. It's, it's not beyond, to me, it's not beyond, beyond the realm of possibility where it's not going to be a college basketball player purposely losing a game. But if he misses free throws, because that's some dumb prop bet, or, or, if, or he scores more points than he normally would, or less points again. But again, it's not actually affecting the game outcome, but people are wagering on that. First of all, it'd be incredibly hard to detect. And I think that's where we're going to go with the major scandals. I think that's the next wave of this. And I'd be shocked if it's not happening already. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point with like fantasy football and and whatever else. But yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point, Sean. Yeah, thank you. So, so um, Sean Patrick Griffin, you know, thanks for, for spending, you know, close to an hour with us today. I have uh, two more questions. But first off, you know, where can people get a hold of you, find your book? Is there any other books or projects that you're working on is kind of the first question. Oh, thank you. Um, they can find a lot about the NBA betting scandal, uh, including my critiques. Because when I wrote Game in the Game, just so everyone knows, it was not intended to be a takedown of Tim Donaghy. And that's not what the book is. It's a straight history of the NBA betting scandal. Now, obviously, if you've already been familiar with Donaghy's story, it's a refutation of a story that was not the intent when I started writing it. So Game in the Game is the book. Uh, you can get it anywhere you can buy books. It's available on all platforms. You can get it on hardcover. Actually, I'm not going to say it, but you know, getting back ebook and audio. My website where you can get all the information is seanpatrickgriffin.net. Sean is S E A N, Patrick, and Griffin is G R I F F I N, seanpatrickgriffin.net. And on Twitter, uh, I try and engage people as much as I can. That is uh, SPG Author, SPG Author on Twitter, or X, I guess. 
And as far as I have nothing coming out soon, um, my, my other popular book is Black Brothers Incorporated. And that's out and successful and a lot of fun. But anyway, that's that. So, Sean, what would be your final thought that you want to leave the audience with, whether it's related to your book, Gaming the Game, or it's related to something else? Don't trust the media. <laughs> uh, that's, only, that's only half a joke, by the way. I, I, I really hope people are skeptical readers uh, after all the stuff that's been happening in the last five or ten years especially. But um, I think the thing, th- this story for me has been a real struggle because Donaghy's book came out in 09, mine comes out in 11. I wound up on a lot of the same TV shows and radio shows that he had been on two years prior. And people would actually say to me, are you saying to me that Tim Donaghy lied to me and my audience? As if that was like a crazy idea. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Why is that so hard for you to grasp? You got con, you got duped. You, you told an interesting story that you thought was funny or interesting. And it didn't occur to you that you shouldn't be doing that, that you should actually be asking follow-up questions. You should prepare for an interview. You should have the basic records. And people just don't do that. So my whole thing about the NBA story is the reason I'm telling you, if you and I took a public opinion poll today, people would get most of it wrong. And they, they would just see because I don't take credit for this phrase, but it's true. I heard somebody say it's not what gets reported, it's what gets repeated. And that's true. So even though my book's successful, gaming was a bestseller when it came out, I don't get anywhere near the oxygen and the airtime Donnie gets. And so I get reported, he gets repeated. And so that's the lesson from this. We have to be very skeptical of what we think about things because you wonder, like, well, okay, if I got that wrong, why did I get it wrong? What else am I getting wrong? And unfortunately, people are not stepping back and realizing that. That's, that's one of the things that has bothered me. I don't mind that people, I say this to my students all the time, I don't mind that you didn't know that. I probably thought the same thing, no matter what topic it was. But then you better be very skeptical the next time you hear something. Well, okay, well, that's what I hear today. Where did I hear it from? Who's saying it? And what, what do I have to back that up? And we're just not skeptical enough, in my opinion. So be skeptical. Well, it's like as we talked before, uh, he, he has nothing to gain from telling the truth. He would still be in jail. So why would you believe a convicted felon who really was – the main person involved without the person fixing the games, they wouldn't have been able to bet on them. Like, yeah, I know. It's just, well, the other thing too is I always say, take me out of the picture. You say you don't have access to the gamblers, the betting records, all the FBI people, the US are fine. Just look at the public record. Like you and I do in this interview, you can cite the court documents. You can cite what the judge said at the trial. This is not hard to do. And it just doesn't happen. And, and the way, and I'm not talking about opinion people. In case your audience is thinking, I'm not talking about like shock jock sports radio hosts. Yeah, they're worse than everyone else. I'm talking about mainstream reporters who re- who treat these things as newsworthy and just write it as fact. And then what happens so many years later in that same journalism office or a grad student isn't they're not being malicious, but they're now citing news stories, not knowing that the news stories wrong. And so you get this entire vicious cycle when your guys, the entire, one quick thing you'll get a kick out of. I was curious. I told my wife, let's, let's try this. Just to be clear, I'm not a fan of Wikipedia. But Wikipedia was crazy wrong on this. And it was citing no credible news, credible news stories, you know, mainstreaming wallets. So I went in and did some editing. As me, I'm not a troll. I literally write that it's me doing the editing on Wikipedia or whatever. And they rejected some of the edits because I wasn't citing 
in their view, reputable news sources. So you, you can't break out of this. <laughs> you can't break through what's full. You just can't. It's impossible. Do you think it would have, we'd have a different narrative if, if Batista would have cooperated with the investigation? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With him not cooperating, like you mentioned, basically they only had Tim Donahue's story to go on to. And if It's for a few reasons. First of all, and I explain, I don't explain this, but I allude to it again in the game. They not only found the NBA betting scandal by mistake, but once it turned into the gambling investigation, Batista was not the target. He's like the small fish in that pond. He, he was not the target. That thing actually wound up, there wound up dozens of people wound up getting indicted in a massive, massive international conspiracy case from that. And so my point is with Donnie, if Batista had approached the feds before Donnie, uh, First of all, they would have known the truth about the NBA betting scandal, and oh my goodness, what they would have learned about the offshore sports betting market. But beyond that, it's not just that he would have been first. The feds didn't understand the scandal. So it wouldn't even necessarily have been about proving Tim Donahue wrong. They would have realized, oh my goodness, when he comes in with this BS story, you can prove it wrong right away. It wasn't going to be a he said, he said story. Because you could actually demonstrate all the things I didn't even mean. The pattern of your bets, where the bets were placed, why they were placed. You, you couldn't excuse it all. And you could literally put in Donahue's face where you say you don't remember what bets you made. Well, here they are. Oh, and by the way, you bet on these teams and they all, you, know, you could do all that. And they didn't have the option to do that. And by the way, the one thing Phil Skeller told me this when I interviewed him for the book, Phil Skeller was the supervisory special agent of the FBI in that, in that unit. When I told him, when I was interviewing him, that I had the betting lines and I did the betting line investigation, he thought that was a great idea and it never occurred to them to do that. And my whole thing was, well, look, even, even if you couldn't get a search warrant for Batista's laptop or an offshore sports thing account, okay, fine, but those betting lines are public. They could have at least said, hey, dude, that's bull. Here are the betting lines on their games. Not everyone else's games. This isn't the NBA dictating outcomes for everyone else. Their games are the ones that are lighting up like a Christmas tree on this list. Explain that. But they didn't have anything to go at him with, so they just said, oh, well, we don't know much. And it's a peanut necro investigation, so enough. Yeah, how the story would be completely different in the mainstream had he come forward yeah. first. But, yeah, so Sean Patrick... Griffin is our guest today, the author of the book, Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. Thanks for having me. It was great. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.